Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Upside Down Crosses. John Newton's hymn states it well. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll worship as I ought. If your worship's dry and stale, it's probably because you haven't recently beheld the altogether lovely Christ upon whom we gladly sacrifice ourselves as living sacrifices. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludy. Well, I have a doozy of a message uh, this morning, and I have no idea how I'm going to get through it quickly. So I probably should just start. That's, that's what I'm thinking. So I'm just going to start, and I'll pick up the pieces as I go. But uh, I said last week that the message, uh, Unstoppable, was just a lot bigger than I was able to deliver. It's just, you know, there's this mountain, and then you're this, like, little guy standing next to it uh, and attempting to represent a mountain when you're a little diddly squat guy. And that's the way I feel with this one as well, except for it's a different... It's a different challenge that I face this week. I feel like the the idea is very clear. However, I feel like there's things in my life that God is wanting to remove. And so as I come into this, I come into it with great fear and trembling, knowing that this is the message God is speaking to me. Because you'll notice as we go through this message, we're always stuck in this message. You're at some point parts of this process and there's in this message this journey that we go through in christianity there's part of us that as we go through a few stages of development we just sort of want to break for a while it's like you know what i'm i'm ahead of everyone else i've done things other people haven't can you lay off god can you just give me a season a reprieve from that searchlight of the spirit of god pressing upon me and pointing things out. I just, I, I just want to be fine for a while. Oh, sorry to do this to you. <laughs> Upside down crosses. I'm not going to explain what that is. There will be a certain moment in this message where that will be understood. For those of you that have studied Christian history, uh, you may have be able to hazard a guess as to what this is. And of course, I've given multiple messages which have mentioned this exact scene in Christian history. However, I'm going to build to it. First of all, I want to lay a foundation in place. And this is something, I have an entire message called the exchange life. The exchange life is a term uh, given by Hudson Taylor when he's describing what takes place in the formation of a true Christian. A true Christian must be one who is transferred from death unto life. And a lot of us call something Christianity that actually is still dead, but it's a steaming life. But there needs to be a transfer from death unto life. And what Hudson Taylor referred to this as is an exchange. You give up your life, and in exchange, you get God's life. So now the life that you live in this body is not your life, it's God's life. Sounds a little confusing, and it is a trip-up point for many. We know it theoretically, we know it conceptually, but we don't understand it in practicality, which is the great challenge of discipleship and Christianity. We have to make Christianity practical. If Christianity is not practical, it's useless. It really is. It's just good thoughts. 
high thoughts about God. That would be wonderful if we could love like that. Praise God for such a thought. Well, if you're not loving like that, something's missing in the whole schematic here. God is interested in seeing Scripture become flesh. The Word became flesh in Jesus Christ, and God's agenda is to see that same Scripture and that same life of Christ become flesh once again in us. And we become living epistles where this world can read the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. So the subtitle I have to this little subsection is Your Piddly Life for God's Abundant Life. I know that you could take offense at that. You calling my life piddly? Yes, I am. It isn't that impressive next to God's. It's not saying you're not valuable and you're not important. God obviously said you're worthy of his shed blood. It doesn't make any sense to us, but we are piddly. We are diddly squat. We shouldn't matter in this whole scheme. We shouldn't. But God put value upon us, and then he took his precious blood and he proved it. Said to all the eternals, all the heavenlies that are watching, do you see the value that I put on that soul? So, even though we are diddly squat, God has said, you are worthy of my blood to be shed for you. I value you. I am interested in you. I love you so much that I have given myself for you. And so the exchange is just a basic concept I want you to begin to hold on to because we're going to build around it. Okay, key scripture and what we're going to go through, Mark 14. We, we have a lot of scripture, so I'm going to do a lot of reading, and we'll build these uh, pieces. Mark 14, you notice it says 3 through 4 and then 6 and 9, because it's basically the story of how the disciples responded to the scene where Mary of Bethany is coming in, and she's pouring out the spikenard upon Jesus. And to streamline it, I have cut a few out. However, it's not a contextual uh, problem. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, or to eat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. So Jesus, whether or not we see a great significance in this scene, first of all, God has done a couple things. He refers to this scene a couple times in Scripture. Just referring to something once should be sufficient for us as Christians to say, whoa, it's important because a lot of things happened in all of history. And a lot of things happened in the ministry of Jesus Christ. However, these things are certain things that were pulled out and God says, do you see it? And this one isn't just pulled out and God isn't just saying, do you see it? But then Jesus himself, even in the context, says, do you see it? What this woman has done unto me. When the gospel is shared, what she has done will be spoken of a memorial of her. That's an interesting statement. When you share the gospel, do you share this story? Well, I don't know if you have to be hogtied to the notion that you have to share this exact story. Here's my point. That is the gospel. What she is demonstrating is the gospel. So what is she demonstrating? She is taking something, this alabaster box of ointment. Seems a little strange, a box of ointment. 
It's a perfume, and it's very costly, worth a year's wages, it says. I don't know if it's in this, uh, this particular one. Or it's, that's what it gives the value. It's a lot. Okay, if you worked for an entire year and bought something, you know what? That's a pretty expensive something that you just bought. The word in the Greek that isn't translated is a word called pastikos, and it's right next to the word spikenard, but for whatever reason, it's not brought out in the translation. It's included in the word spikenard, which means something in which we put our trust. So Mary has put her trust in this spikenard. It is something that she can always fall back on. It is something that she has faith in. And if all goes south, she knows that this spikenard can carry her through. And Jesus says, you want to know the gospel? Look at what this woman did. She took the very thing that she had trust in, the thing that she had leaned on outside of God, and she broke it out upon Jesus Christ. She said, I trust in him. He is my all in all. This is my life. And I give up everything, my most precious things, for him. Okay, I'm laying a foundation for something that I don't know if you were to ask me if I've ever taught on it. I've taught on it indirectly, but never as a direct theme, and that's worship. When I say the word worship, most of us immediately default to the idea of singing. The, the word, whether it's in the Hebrew or the Greek, is dealing with bowing down, prostrating oneself, as a dog lapping uh, the foot of its master. A little awkward there. But it's a notion of prostration is worship. Okay, King, servants, walk into the throne room, worship. Fall down, show reverence, show a value, esteem someone in front of you. If you're worshiping someone, you are giving them deference and reverence and respect and adoration. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are asked to worship the false god that Nebuchadnezzar has crafted, this image. They refuse to because they will only bow down to God. Okay, so there's a precedent that we see in Scripture about how we offer our worship. However, most of us, when we think of worship, we only think of singing. I know some of us know that worship is a lifestyle, and every, probably every church brings that topic up at least once uh, a year, some, somehow, some way, that it's not just your singing, it's your living. Well, I would like to take that and let's expand it, because I would like for us to understand what worship is. And I would propose at the very beginning that what we just saw here is worship. She didn't sing. It wasn't necessarily a bodily position, even though it was. It's an act of the soul. It's an act of our lives towards our great Redeemer. And that looks differently depending on where we're at. If we're in church and we're moved by the realities of who he is, out flows a song or a shout or a thanksgiving. But we're not always in this situation. Sometimes it looks different. And so I want to walk through that of how it looks different and how this must overtake our lives, where our lives are an expression of poured out spikenard and worship unto our king. And I would like it to impact our practical singing form of worship here. Because sometimes... You know, we're just bursting at the seams to express something unto our God. And the wonderful thing about corporate worship in that context is that it gives us opportunity 
to express ourselves, to get down on our faces, to raise our hands and to say thank you for who you are and what you've done. The classic understanding of preparation for worship in the church was before you enter into worship, you meditate upon the person of God, upon his truth, upon his glory. And so the concept was you must behold God before you sing to God or express to God. The reason for that is if you don't behold something, then you have a tendency to be rather mechanical in it. And for instance, imagine that I said there's a beautiful sunset outside right now. But we had uh, the, the, the curtain closed here. And I said, but just trust me. And you're like, beautiful sunset, beautiful, beautiful sunset, beautiful sunset. And I go, let's sing about the beautiful sunset. And you're like, oh, what a beautiful sunset. Okay, that is ridiculous and it's false. Because you're not seeing the sunset. You're hearing me talk about the sunset, but you're not seeing it. If you're not seeing it, it's a joke. Why are you talking about it? I can talk about it because I just saw it. I come in and I say, you need to see it too. It should move you not to sing about it, but to go see it for yourself. And what has happened in worship today is we hear reference to beautiful attributes of God and great things that he has done. Do you know that your God has died for you? Do you realize that he rose from the grave? Do you realize that he sits at the right hand of God Almighty and has all authority? And you're like, hmm, fascinating. Praise you, God. And you sing a song about it. However, you have not seen it. You are borrowing my eyesight or the eyesight of someone around you. You need to see it. And if you're not seeing it, that's your first priority in your Christian walk. I must see it. I need to see this. God, what do you need to do to remove the scales? I must behold you. So let's talk about worship real quick. This is, a, this is an Eric enunciation, okay? I'm not just, this is an, an outflow of what Scripture says, but I'm just going to set the table with it. The laying down of all you are, the pouring out of all you have, the giving up of all that hinders your soul from gaining more and more of Jesus Christ. Worship is breaking open the perfumed spikenard of your life and body and reverently pouring it on the head and feet of your fair and beloved King. Worship is the act of proclaiming in attitude, in word, in song, in deed, and in body that the glory of God is your singular heart's desire. And to see him exalted and adored is the driving passion of your life. Now, if we were just to stand up against that statement and measure our life of worship, you know, we might not look that hot. It's all right. What I want to do here is not just bring conviction to the body of Christ to say, you know what, we're sort of paltry in our givenness and in our adoration of God. I want us to begin to behold. I want us to be stirred to begin to move in the direction of giving to our God what is due his name. The four ingredients of true worship. So let's walk through these. The first one is what I was just saying, which is beholding, really seeing, not knowing about something or knowing that historically something happened and you agree. You know that the Second World War took place. You know 
that Christopher Columbus discovered the shores of America in 1492. These are things that you've heard or you know about. It means very little to you other than you know, to pass a test. And you can also know that Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago, that he lived a sinless life, that he died even for your sin, yes, and all these wonderful things, and he rose from the dead on the third day, and he ascended to be with the Father. You could know that he poured out his spirit, and you could know what uh, the early church performed as a result of the power that was vested to them through the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You could know these things. But if you don't behold them, if you don't see them, personally see them, have you seen the cross? Have you seen that crucifixion and that it was your death too? Have you felt that literally sear into your being? Because you know it. When you see it, it moves you. When you behold it, it's the equivalent of seeing that great sunset. What happens? When you see the beautiful sunset, do you have to have someone twist your arm to say, say something nice about it. Say something nice about it. Like, okay, it's a nice sunset. That's the way most of us are in Christianity. Okay, sing something nice to God. God wants you to say something nice to him. Say, holy, holy, holy. And then you go, holy, holy, holy. Okay, that's fine then. But do you see that he's holy, holy, holy? Because when you see it, it comes out. Holy, holy, holy. No one twists your arm. It comes out. Is it coming out of you? If it's not coming out of you, beg God to have those eyes cleared so that you can see it. Trembling with genuine reverence. When you witness the holy, holy, holy God, when you see him the way Isaiah did, and you see him high and lifted up, you see him in his holy, holy, holy chamber, you tremble because you recognize how unlike him you are. And that's worship. Worship is a prostration. You see the men and women of the Bible that come before the presence of God, they collapse on their face. By the way, they don't fall backwards, they fall forwards. They fall forwards in reverence and humble prostration before the realities of the living God. This is worship. So when you see it, it crumples you to the ground. If you find you're, that you're able to stand upright at all times without that pressure to bend low, you might not be beholding it. It's like, don't you see the sunset? Don't you recognize this? We may find out that you're actually colorblind because you're looking at the same thing. You're like, yeah, that, that, that's nice. But you're only just putting us off. You don't see it, do you? Because I'm looking at something, I've never seen a sunset like that. Come to find out you are colorblind. You're not seeing it. You're looking at the same thing, but you're not seeing the color, the dazzle, the sparkle, the glory. You must see it. And what it leads to is a trembling. It leads to a reverence because he is unlike us. He is perfect in every way. He's a consuming fire. He's a mighty, terrible one that just happens to be gentle and loving and merciful and kind. And all of that package together causes us to be silenced in his presence. And we collapse before him and say, oh God, you are worthy to receive all glory, honor, and praise and thanksgiving. May you be exalted. Take what is rightfully yours.
Denying self. This, by the way, is not a choice where along the way you're saying, okay, as you're trembling, then you're like pondering, you're going, okay, now the scriptures say I need to deny myself and get out of the way. It is the result of beholding. When you behold and you begin to tremble and God says, out, you must be removed. No selfishness here, no flesh here. You don't argue. You are in the burning, fiery presence of God and it's removed from you. You must leave. You must get out. You must decrease. There's a denying of self in the presence of God. And this is part of worship. We do not bring ourselves to worship. It is not about how you sound when you sing, for instance. We've all done that. Well, those of us that like to sing, you ever had that thought as you're singing? It's like, I wonder if the person in front of me is hearing how nice my voice is. Okay, that, can we get you and me out of the picture? Okay, what is this about? Is it about us? We're not beholding. Because when you're beholding, you're not considering what you're looking like. You're not considering, I wonder how, you know, they're going to really see some good worship here. No? We're looking at Jesus. We're not thinking about ourselves. We get out of the way. That is part of what it means to see and to behold the King of Kings. You are forgotten. He is remembered. He is memorialized. He is lifted up. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be looking around and comparing vocal notes and how well we stay on key. We will be in the almighty presence. I hope he gives us better voices then. That would be nice. However, we will not be pondering the trivial. We will be looking and beholding face to face. And it will be worship. Demonstrating. Five ingredients to true worship. Beholding, trembling, denying self, demonstrating true affection. When you are moved, when you see, you express. As I say of the sunset, it elicits praise. Now, the form of affection that you show the sunset is you praise it. You must say something nice about it. You, you write your love note, if you will, to the sunset and you say, what a beautiful sunset. And then you gather everyone around you to see it. Hey, guys, have you seen the sunset? This is just a natural result, by the way, of beholding. If you find yourself awkwardly feeling like you need to evangelize, it's probably because you haven't beheld the living God. Because when you behold, no one's twisting your arm to go out and make disciples of all men. No one is twisting your arm to say, go into all the earth. You are compelled to go the same way you go back into your house and gather everyone to see the sunset because you have seen something and you know everyone else must see it. And so you demonstrate affection, whether that's with kind words, whether that's with gifts given. There's all sorts of various ways that we worship our king. And I'm going to walk through what those things are, but there's a demonstration. It's not just a scene, and it's not just a denial of self. It's a response. There is a practical outflow of our life towards our king. The fifth one. Notice I didn't say suffering. 
Suffering will come because you're beholding something that this world doesn't want to see. And now, and you're denying yourself and you're demonstrating your affection towards it and you're drawing people to it. And guess what? This world does not want to see that sunset. Please look at the sunset. I don't want to see the sunset. Shut that man up. Shut that girl up. And here's the interesting thing. I didn't say suffering is part of worship. It is. But I want to emphasize something. This is what this message is about. Gladly suffering. I don't care what this costs me. I've seen it. And it is worthy of my life. And it would be my privilege. My privilege to suffer. Because he invites us. And he says, will you? Will you suffer? Because you will. To show them me, you will need to suffer. Because they don't want to see it. But if you are willing to suffer, and you gladly suffer, eyes will be opened and they too can behold. There is something that happens through glad suffering that cannot happen any other way. And when we don't just suffer, but we gladly suffer, we suffer with a joy in our heart. There's a breaking forth where that sight that we are beholding suddenly begins to reach the others around us that have been dead to it and they were blind to it and colorblind to it and they could not behold. Our glad suffering has some way of impacting the heavenly commerce back and forth between earth and heaven. Rejoicing in the exchange. There's an exchange that's taking place. You're giving up your life and you're getting something from God. When this world comes and they strip you of something, I want you to realize it's not just a giving up. Most of us focus on that. It's like, what? God, you're asking for everything? You're at, you want to take it all away? It's an exchange life, which means when you are asked and God takes, if you will, or the enemy comes in and plunders your home and takes all your goods, it's not just a taking you're getting something in exchange for it. And that something is far greater and it makes you all the more happy. Suddenly the sunset just got brighter. <laughs> yeah, they just ran off with your car. They just stole all your silverware. And they ran off and you gave them your cloak too. And suddenly the sunset is more rich. And now you're even happier. It's like, look at it. It even is more beautiful now. And then they say, the guy just got worse. Your worship increases. You're even more glad, as Paul says, exceeding glad when they falsely accuse you. What kind of time is that for exceeding gladness? Uh, don't you realize you were just falsely accused? Uh, when you're falsely accused, oftentimes that means that they're going to kill you and you're going to suffer just as Jesus did. He was falsely accused. Do you want that? It's not that my flesh wants it. But there's a willingness because have you seen my king? This body for him, gladly, willingly. Forsaking all for Christ's sake. Now notice the word sake and forsaking, okay? I'm gonna walk through the word sake real quick. It's, it's, this is fascinating. Sake. Well, what is a sake? Isn't that a funny word? It looks like some Japanese word, sake. Uh, 
Let's sake, let's, let's, let's make it the equivalent of a pantry. Okay, you have a pantry in your house. It's where you store your, your baked goods, your canned goods, your cereal, various things like that. Honey sits in ours. We have coconut butter in ours. You ever tried coconut butter? Instead of butter on our toast, we get coconut butter. Okay, so never complain about your butter. Uh, but a sake is someone's benefit or advantage, good, well-being, welfare, interest, and profit. And so we are living for someone's sake, for someone's pantry. Someone's pantry is being filled by our daily decisions. When we go to work, whose pantry are we filling? I'm not trying to make you feel bad about that because God says you need to fill your pantry for your family. I mean, that's just what you need to do. However, whose pantry are we filling? When we go to work, we're filling our own pantry. There's a bigger picture in life that we must recognize and that we are not supposed to be filling our pantry. We must deal with our personal life. We must deal with our family. We must care for those around us. We must deal with the church and the church's needs. However, we are first and foremost after the order of filling Christ's pantry. So our sake is what we typically live for. We do things for our sake. Our pantry. Hey, if it doesn't benefit my pantry, I'm not spending any time on it. Why would I do that? If I follow Christ, then my sake is emptied. You've got to be kidding. I'm not doing that. Why do you think when God says the road is narrow and few are those who find it? It's because God's saying, uh, you know, your pantry, I need you to empty it to come follow me. You've got to be kidding me. What would I do without my pantry? If I don't take care of my pantry, then I'm going to go hungry. I, I, I'm not going to be able to function. I'm not going to be comfortable in this life. He says, you know, the rest of the world is concerned about their pantry. I ask you to seek first the kingdom of heaven and my righteousness and all the things in your pantry that you will need will be taken care of. My request, though, is that you focus on my pantry. I'll take care of yours. So our pantry, our sake, is not what this is about. Christ's sake, Christ's pantry. We could call it Christ's glory. Living for Christ's benefit, advantage, good, well-being, welfare, interest, and profit. Is he being seen in our generation? Is he being known? Who has the best of our energies? Why are you doing what you're doing? When you start living for Christ's pantry and Christ's sake instead of your own, your decision-making criterion is completely different. Before it was like, what benefit do I have? Now it's, what does Christ get out of it? How is he seen? You don't say, well, what happens to me in the process? No, how is Christ seen? So we were talking about crossing the 38th parallel into North Korea. Our reasoning isn't, well, what happens to my pantry? <laughs> what happens to my physical body? What happens to my life? What happens to my health? What happens to these things? No, it's like, but what would happen to Christ's glory? Is that what would help Christ's glory? Would that fill Christ's pantry? I'm in. That's our reasoning because he takes care of our pantry. Whatever is needed for us to fulfill the purpose of why we're here on earth, he takes care of it. Our job and our sole focus is his pantry. So for sake. So we have sake, our sake, Christ's sake, for sake. We could look at it as being emptying our pantry to fill his. We forsake we give up. We give up all personal benefit for the benefit of another. 
surrendering earthly advantage for the advantage of another, letting go of that which is good and prospers your well-being, welfare, and interest in order that another would find gain, relinquishing profit that another might find riches. This is not the way we are taught to live in America, by the way. We are not taught to forsake. We are taught to capitalize, to gain, and make sure we have compounding interest. We are not taught to forsake. What does the Declaration of Independence say? That we have a right to the pursuit of life, liberty, or I'm sorry, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a right. We have a right to these things. And God says, and will you forsake them? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to fill my pantry. I don't care that you live in America and it's in the Declaration of Independence. It's a good thing, by the way. As far as governmentally speaking, I'm glad it's in the Declaration of Independence. As a government, we should protect that. However, as Christians, we willingly give it up. And that's Christianity. This is about him, not about us. Ten degrees of worshipful exchange. Forsaking all that Christ might be all in all. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these, and I'm going to be reading a lot of scriptures here. There is an ever-increasing intensity to this list. At level one, you'll notice that we can squirm at level one because God's coming into our pantry, and we're not used to him being there. It's like, hey, God, that's my stuff? And he's like, I know. It's been your stuff. But remember, you said you want me, which means, you see that thing on the shelf there? I need that. What? God, that's always been mine. I'm not exactly sure what would happen if you took it. Do you trust me? Because if I take that and you forsake that, there's an exchange that will take place. I'll give you something in return. It won't look the same, but it's better. What we're going to see here is that the Christian life isn't a deterioration it's a maturation. It's a growing up. It's an edification of what God intends us to be. We don't get worse because we forsake things for Jesus Christ. We get better. We bring glory to God in a greater degree. We become happier, ironically, even in giving up the things we've always found happiness in. We get happier. How does that work? Well, how does a sunset get brighter and clearer and more beautiful when they steal your car and plunder your silverware? Sort of hard to explain how it works until you start walking it out. And suddenly your testimony is, I actually know what Paul's talking about. We rejoice when we face persecutions. What, what kind of statement is that? We rejoice? Why would you do that? This is just some type of therapeutic response. It's like, okay, we're going to have a good attitude about this. All right, all right, all right, everyone rejoice. And everyone's like, oh, all right, thank you, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. No, it's real. We're beholding a better sunset. I've never seen it look so beautiful. And that's after they've stripped everything from us. It looks more beautiful. The worship increases. It's not fake. It's real. So the 10 degrees of worshipful exchange. First degree is forsake your individuality. So God's coming into your pantry and he's going to ask for something right now. You know that life that's all about you? Your individuality, your sense of style, your way of doing things. You draw people into yourself. You have talents, you have abilities. I need you to be grafted into something bigger than yourself and to lose your individuality in me. doesn't mean God doesn't treat you as an individual still, but you give up that right to individuality and that spotlight being able to be on you, to see your unique attributes. But what 
what is the exchange? We embrace an identity in Christ. So we give up our identity outside of Christ. Our identity is someone special who can stand on their own two feet. And we're grafted into him and we gain an identity in Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him go into his pantry, take self, and forsake it. Let him go in and take that individuality, that sense of style, that uniqueness that has been all his Take it and forsake it. Break it out upon the head of Jesus. And take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And listen to this line. You're going to see the word sake in it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. You want to find life? Start dealing with Christ's sake. Start dealing with his pantry. You find life. That's the promise. Okay, our second uh, little degree of worship is forsake your earthly course, embrace his control. You have a plan for your life. It's good to have a plan. I'm not against it. But isn't it true that we all sort of are like, here's where I'm going. So what are you going to do after you graduate? Well, I'm planning on going to you know, the community college here, then I'm going to transfer into this, and then we're gonna, I'm going to plan on doing this. You have a plan. It's not that it's a bad plan. But your earthly course is sitting on the shelf of your pantry. Christ just came in and took self and asked you to forsake it. You've got to be kidding. This is intense stuff. You know all those plans, all those ambitions, all those designs that you have? I mean, some of them are good. You know, I had a, de I had a design that I was going to be a missionary doctor. Hey, who's going to criticize that in here? Hey, can you say something negative about that? I'm going to go and be a Christian on the mission field. Then I come back for half the year, earn a fortune, and then I can spend a little of it on the mission field, but my fortune's still intact. It was a great plan. And God came into my pantry, and he said, you know what, I appreciate you planning. I have a bigger plan for you, and that is you must come under my control and let me lead you. And so he came into my pantry, and he asked me to forsake my earthly course. It's one of the scariest things I ever went through, by the way. What are, you, what are you going to do with me? Where are you taking me? You have to trust me. Are you willing? So this is just level two worship. But we gladly, we gladly demonstrate our true affection to our God by taking these things and breaking them on his head. The things that we've trusted in. We've trusted in our plan. We've trusted in our ability, self's ability to pull this off. But God is diminishing our confidence in these things. We're taking our trust that was in these things that were in our pantry and we're pouring it out on him. And that is the formation of a worshipful life before God. This belongs on Jesus, not on me. You take it. And then we think he's done. You ever notice that in your Christian walk? Because some of you are saying, I've gone through this. I know exactly what he's talking about. But then we close up our pantry. We're like, okay, I've done that. Now I can start teaching everyone to empty their pantry. And the reason I say that this particular message is a challenging one for me to give is because God keeps showing me that I still have things in my pantry. And I've done some bold and audacious things for Jesus Christ. And I thought I broke it all out on his head. 
And then in comes the message, upside down crosses. And by the way, it came to me before it came to you. Okay. I take my key and I unlock the door. How did it get locked in the first place? Isn't it funny? We sneak around at night acting like we're getting a glass of water. We take our key and go, he'll never know. I know he's done in there. I know he doesn't have any further plans. I'm fine. I'm spiritual enough. So this is uh, forsaking your earthly course. You are not your own, quote unquote, Paul the Apostle. My beloved spoke and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. That's the bridegroom speaking to his bride in Song of Solomon. Come away. Leave your people. Come. Give up your plans, your agenda. Come. And they answered Joshua saying, this is amazing. You know, Joshua, the one who led the Israelites into the land of promise, conquered 31 hostile empires. They come to Joshua. All the people come to Joshua. He's an amazing symbol of Jesus Christ. And this is what they say. And they answered Joshua saying, all that thou commands us, we will do. And wherever thou sends us, we will go. That is a great statement. Is that the statement of your heart? Because that needs to be the statement of worship. This is worship. This statement is worship. All that thou commands us, we will do. And wherever thou send us, we will go. It's breaking that spikenard of control, of desiring it your way upon Jesus Christ's head. This is talking about the cherubim in Ezekiel. I know I've talked with this church about it multiple times. But it says of them, the most mighty, powerful, beautiful creatures, wherever the spirit was to go, they went. Is that the statement that could be said of us? Because that's worship. Wherever the spirit was to go, they went. Okay, third, forsake earthly comforts, embrace his comfort. Doesn't that sound like a bad exchange, an unwise exchange? It's like, wait a minute here, I need to know a little bit more information on this one. Uh, forsake earthly comforts? Ha! Uh, I'm an American. I have a right to comfort. Isn't that in the Declaration of Independence somewhere? I have a right to comfort. And God comes back into that pantry that we locked at midnight. And he says, I know that you want those comforts. I know what your inclination is towards. But I want you to realize there's a greater comfort there's a greater stability, there's a greater sustenance, and you can't find it in this world. It comes when you give that up. God is not interested in making you more uncomfortable than is needed. He's just saying, your pursuit is not comfort. You give this up. He comes into your pantry and he says, I, I need that. Uh, listen to this. This is Paul speaking. In journeyings often, he's describing his life. He's in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. That is not the definition of American comfort. Not any one of us is going to sign up for this as just, oh yeah, I would choose that. That sounds like a good life. This is the life that we are made available to. Now, we're not just left in perils. 
We're not just left in nakedness and wandering in destitution and sheepskin. This isn't where God leaves us. We're not some woeful creature. 1 Corinthians 9 says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Your body has cravings. It has cravings for comfort. It has cravings that are sexual. It has cravings that are appetite-based. It has cravings that are sleep-based. You want life your way. You want your environment to appease that, to serve that. And God says, I need that. I need you to be willing to make yourself vulnerable to the removal of earthly comfort so that I can be your comforter. Everything you're looking to the world to find that sufficiency in, the only way you're going to find it in the correct way is if you let that go and break it out on the head of your beloved. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Jesus actually says to his disciples, it is better that I go to be with the Father because then I can send you the comforter. And we're like, thanks, but you know, couldn't I have both? I'm saying, if you put your trust and your confidence in your future of what a bright future is upon the fact that you are earthly comfortable, you cannot truly continue forward in the expression of worship unto your king. He asks for it. And this is just level three. Forsake reputation. Embrace identification with him. You know what? If, if you thought that this was a little sticky up to this point, it starts to get a little more and more uncomfortable. Because there's a certain limit of which we can challenge the church of Jesus Christ today. And we're starting to tread on dangerous territory now. Because yes, Paul had to give up these things. Yes, Jesus had to give up these things. But not all of us are called to that. They were special Christians. They modeled Christianity. It's an example that was set for us. There is a pattern to these men. What you see in Paul, he says, do. And so he gave up his earthly comforts. And he broke it out on the head of his Jesus. And he worshiped him. And he was willing to forsake his reputation. This is one of the hardest things I've had to face in my life. I like to be liked. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like to be falsely accused and be thought of in an ill way. However, that goes with the territory. I'm actually quite used to it now. It's, it's funny, but I'm used to it. Uh, people don't like me and they say things against me and you know what? I, it doesn't shock me anymore. I've given it up. It doesn't mean that I want all of you to hate me. It's not a desire to be hated. It's a willingness to love my Jesus by saying, even if I'm misunderstood, and even if people think dirt of me, as long as I'm living rightly before you, that's all that matters. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. Which do you want to be on that discussion? Oh, can I be the one he's talking about? The church is sort of back home. They're comfortable. They're fine. Paul says, you want forward movement? You want to progress in this? This is what comes with it. 
We're like sheep under the slaughter. We are a spectacle under this world. They look at us and they, they mock us. These guys are idiots. We are fools for Christ's sake, for his pantry. We do this for him. It's not that we want to be deemed foolish, and in heaven we're not foolish. But in the world's eyes, we will look and appear foolish. This is worship. You tell your king, for you, for you. And as they treat you with contempt, suddenly the sunset becomes more beautiful. It's more beautiful. You are even more amazing than I've ever known. It gets more radiant. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. What kind of blessing is that? And persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake. That's the key. It's for Christ's sake. If you're an idiot and you really are going around kicking people in the shins and punching them in the cheek and saying Jesus loves you, that's not for Christ's sake. That's a tribute to idiocy and nothing more. We live for Jesus and then for his sake. We stand for his truth. And even though when we point people at that sunset, they mock us and they ridicule us, they say there's nothing there. And they close the blinds. We stand and say, I will continue to preach. And I will continue to show you because I love you. And they spit upon our face. And suddenly when we look back at that sunset, it grows in its beauty to us. And we fall down prostrate afresh and say, holy, holy, holy. You ever notice the 24 elders? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Then I always picture them standing up and patting each other going, oh, wasn't that amazing? And then God shows them even a greater revelation of himself. And they fall fresh down. And throughout all of eternity, sort of getting up going, oh, wow, God is amazing. Oh, fall back down. Forsaking earthly friendships, embracing intimacy with the Most High. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to walk a, a lonely path. There's nothing in me that wants to be isolated out and to be an island from all people and to be the weird one on planet Earth, to be the John the Baptist guy preaching on the, in the wilderness with my little loincloth, camel skin thing, and eating locust and wild honey. I'm not attracted to that life probably any more than you are. However... I want to worship my king. And I am willing to do, have him do in me whatever he sees fit. Because in the process of forsaking these things, it's not that I'm left alone. I gain intimacy with the most high God. And I tell you what, that's a good thing. It's an amazing thing. And it's worth whatever it costs us in this life. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For wherever thou go, Ruth said to Naomi, I will go. And wherever thou lodge, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Naomi has told Ruth, no, stay with your people, your friends and your family. Stay with them. But her loyalties were shifted to the kingdom of heaven. And she said, I will follow you. A woman of the, of the line of Abraham, I will follow you. And your people will be my people and your God my God. I will leave this behind. I will leave Moab behind. I will leave the world behind for the sake of your God. It's an incredible picture of what we're asked to do. In Psalm 45, 
Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Forsake it all. Leave your people, your father's house. Come, come away with your king and worship him. He's better. I know these are our comforts. It's not like God wants us to spurn people and say, you're nothing compared to God. I'm going after God. That isn't how it works. It's not like we're hitting people in the, in the face as we leave. But we are leaving in the sense of dependency because we know as we continue to stand and point at the sunset, we know that they may very well reject us and it's in a willingness to be rejected. It's a willingness to be forsaken by this world. So we forsake it for the sake of Jesus Christ. We don't put stock in it. We don't put hope in it. We put our hope in one, and we break out this area of our life upon our king. This is David speaking. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We would rather be in the courts of our God for one day than have a thousand days with the world. Anywhere else doesn't measure up to what we are being invited into. And this is worship. That's a worship statement. And David says, it's better in your house, in your courts for one day than a thousand elsewhere. It's like the statement, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. It's not enough. We have to use some type of metaphorical picture to say, oh, I don't have what is needed to be able to express this to you. But if I did, it would sound so much better because I'm limited in my capacity to show you how much I love you. Number six, forsake earthly family and embrace his adoption as sons and daughters. You know, God spends a lot of time in scripture telling us to honor our parents. So this isn't the opposite of that. When he says, you must hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, you ever seen that statement? That's an awkward one. What in the world am I supposed to do with that? forsake. You forsake a dependency upon these things. It's the same with denying self. It's not that you actually come up to yourself and slit your throat. You're not killing yourself. It's not suicide. It's a denial of self. It's a forsaking of self's position. And it's a forsaking of that dependency and that need. Are you willing to be called across the world and never see your family again? For the sake of Jesus. That's what it's talking about. And to be adopted as his son or daughter. That's an act of worship. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto thee, There is no man that has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. If any man come to me, it says in Luke 14, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Unless you forsake what's in that pantry, you cannot be his disciple. Unless you bring this before your king and break it out on him, that is discipleship. 
This is the act of showing him reverence and adoration. Do you believe he is who he says he is? Some of you nod along and you say, yeah, I know he is. You need to see it, don't you? You must see it. Because when you see it, it's reasonable. It's your reasonable act of service. It's your reasonable spiritual worship. Have you seen it? Have you beheld it? Give it all up for him. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman and made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. He doesn't just leave us orphans. He doesn't just say, you know what? You need to forsake this dependency upon family. You need to follow me. He adopts us. He's our father. He meets the needs within us. He's calling us to a radical life. It's called Christianity. However, he doesn't leave us lonely and abandoned. He comes in and meets every need. He says, seek first the kingdom. My righteousness and all these things that are needed for life and godliness, all these things that you would look to in your pantry, when you need them, they will be there. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You know what? That's not bad. But God says, to gain it, are you willing to forsake this? You see, we want them both. We want life on our terms, and we want the grand promises of the Christ life, simultaneous. And God's saying, it's an exchange. I can give you my life, but it's an exchange for yours. Number seven, forsake freedom of body. Embrace the intercessor's call. Freedom of body. It's an awkward way of saying it. Probably not the best way of saying it. But basically, chains. Paul said bonds. You know, when you're chained to a prison cell floor, you don't have freedom of body. You are chained to a wall, and you can't do what you always do. Right now, I mean, if you wanted, you could jump up and down. If you wanted, you could go run a couple circles around the chapel. I mean, we might look out and go, huh, interesting. But you could do it. You have a freedom of body. Are you willing to give that up? Whoa. What do you mean by that? Are you willing to submit your body in such a way that it would be leveraged by the kingdom of heaven for the release of the captives? Remember Jesus? He gave up his freedom of body. He yielded. And he became a captive. He was nailed to a tree. He was pinned down. And he worked his intercession. I know this isn't probably the most popular one on the list so far. But my question is, when Christ goes into our pantry, he sees this. You see, we have a right to our liberty. We have a right to free. God doesn't want us in chains and in a prison. It's not like that's God's destiny. That's the enemy. That's what he does. And God says, if you knew that you could rescue those that are imprisoned and take their place, and you could be strapped with irons to a concrete floor. Would you be willing to do it to set others free? That's an intercessor. An intercessor is one that is strong, one that is free, set free by the spirit of Christ that says, God, take these arms and bind them with chains if necessary to set the captives free because when you're in chains, you're still free. They're not. 
but you can take their chains the same way Jesus did. He was still pure and faultless. He was the offering. He didn't deserve that, but he was stronger than the situation. He was built to be victorious in that situation, and so will you be. Yes, it's not attractive, but are you willing to forsake the freedom of body to heed the intercessor's call? Acts 16, and the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, then cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Is this happening to a Christian? What did they do wrong? They were showing people the sunset, and they refused to stop. They had beheld something, and they would not stop talking about it. They're being bound in chains in the inner cell, not just the external cells. It might be a chance of escape. Not here. We're going to make sure that they go nowhere. This is an act of worship, by the way. And at midnight, what do they do? Paul and Silas prayed. And they're seeing a sunset in a prison cell. And they sing praises unto God. How many of you are singing praises unto God in your current difficulties? They're chained in the inner cell singing praises to God. They're seeing something that you may not be seeing. That's what I want. And the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. Their intercession set free the prison. Now, we could say, is it good that they got set free? These could have been bad guys. Well, we're all bad guys. The symbol here is that your intercession, your willingness to worship God in and through the bonds, sets the captives free. It's a beautiful picture. This man, speaking of Paul, doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. He's being evaluated by the Romans and the, you know, the, the kings and the uh, the. the, the One's in power evaluating. He's done nothing worthy of death or bonds. It'll be a statement of Jesus, statement of Paul, statement of all the apostles. It'll be the statement of you. It's not that you did something worthy of death or bonds. It's that you were talking about something and you were pointing to a sunset that they don't want to see. And the only way to shut you up is either by bonds, and if that doesn't work because earthquakes get you out, and it's death. I'm an ambassador in bonds, says Paul. I love that statement. Are we willing to say that? I'm an ambassador. I'm a messenger from heaven, the kingdom of heaven. I just happen to be wearing bonds. That therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He leveraged his position as an intercessor, and he saw incredible things take place in bonds. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident in my bonds. His bonds gave strength to the body of Christ. Paul's doing it. He's giving up even his physical freedom. He's doing it. And look at it. He's rejoicing in it. He's strong in it. It gave them confidence. Are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now they're saying, do you see the sunset? Do you know that we'll stick you in prison and in bonds just as we did 
Saul or Paul? And they say, yeah, and he's doing great. Hey, take my wrists. They were more confident. They saw that God sustained, that the, 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 the sunset beauty increased. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Okay, number eight, forsake health of body. Embrace the power of suffering. You've heard me talk about physical health. You've heard me talk about the stripes of Jesus Christ. Does God still heal? And now, I submit to you, are you willing to take this body that God makes strong and allow him to pour it out? Why would he do that? Why would he make me strong to pour you out? He's given you strength. He's given you health to be sharp for the commission that you've received. Jesus was ready, and his life was spilled out. When he was in Gethsemane, he was sweating great drops of blood. His body was literally expiring. He was dying physically. How could that happen to God? He was giving his life as a form of worship. This is worship. To be willing to give up our body for the purposes of Christ's pantry. To forsake even health for him. He makes you strong to pour you out. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. That's the great heroes of the faith right there. Second Corinthians, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. This is Paul speaking. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent. In deaths oft, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. You know what, this guy's body is a pulp. That's not right, is it? It wasn't just bonds that he submitted to. It was physical suffering. He submitted himself to it. Jesus wasn't just in bonds. He submitted to having his body torn to shreds, pierced. This is extreme, I know. But this is worship. Your body is not your own. It's been bought with a price. And if the Father would do that with the body of his blessed Son, and he would do it with the body of his apostles, which were a foundation for the church of God, does it not follow reasonably that he would say to you, your pantry is just as theirs was. And if you want to bring glory to me the way they brought glory to me, are you willing to give this up and break it upon my head? In perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and if I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern my infirmities. I will glory in the things that are putting the glory of God firmly in the view of this world around us that are filling the pantry of my Christ. When I am weak, he is being seen. He is being seen as I'm being poured out, and that's what he boasts in. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The stigmata, the actual marks of suffering, 
Paul says, do you see it? My body has been given. It's been abused. Many people thought, have felt that the reason he couldn't see well and he couldn't write well is because his head was smashed during the stoning. When you're stoned, they take big rocks and they try and crack your skull. So as a result, he's brought outside the city of Lystra. The saints surround him. He gets back and goes right back in. But his head might not have come back into working order. He might have been a little cockeyed. I don't know. However, it's reasonable. This guy was stoned. <laughs> what? This poor guy. And he just kept going. He's the Energizer Bunny. He gets right back up and says, my job is not done to live as Christ. But boy, to die is gain. Get me out of here, God. He just kept going. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. Forsake life, embrace the martyr's crown. Now, I want to prepare you for something here. That's nine. What could possibly be ten? <laughs> what? I, I mean, you give up your life. What else is there in the pantry? That's it. It's all emptied. Forsake life, embrace the martyr's crown. I'm not going to give you the answer to that yet. Acts 21. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed, and we came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven. That's the guy that uh, preached to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch uh, and then baptized him in water and then disappeared suddenly. That's the same guy. Sort of cool to see him again. Uh, so they entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. This is an interesting scene, by the way. And when he was come unto us, Agabus, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet. So it's like some kind of belt thing. Binds his own hands and feet. So Agabus binds his own hands and feet with his girdle. And said, thus saith the Holy Ghost... So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle, which was Paul, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place, this is Luke speaking, so it's Luke and then Philip and all these others around him, which are obviously mighty men of God. Both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't do it, Paul. The Spirit of God is warning us. You will be bound then Paul answered, what mean you to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Do you have such a drive? Everyone around you counsels you, say, don't go, don't go, they'll bind you. I'm not, not just willing to have chains, but my wrists, I'm willing that they kill me. Have you seen the sunset? It's worthy to receive all of me. Don't try and talk me out of it. This is my worship unto my king. Let me go. I'm headed to Jerusalem, and what they do to me, they do to me. And all the great dramas unfolded when he went to Jerusalem. Some of the greatest Incredible stories happened as a result of Paul's worship. He was unstoppable. He had a job to do, and that was to stand before Caesar, to be a testimony amongst the Gentiles. And he was amongst the whole earth. Even though he would be bound, he knew it. It didn't stop him. 
And those chains couldn't stop him either. 2 Corinthians 4. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Your body has a purpose. And it's not for you. It belongs to Jesus. And the dying of the Lord Jesus, being allowed to be revealed in and through your body, is part of the invitation as a Christian. I know it doesn't sound that attractive to our natural man, but the sunset has never been more beautiful when you begin to see these things. Am I here? Where am I preaching from today? I'm trying to figure that out too. Because when I hear Paul speak in that little room to Agabus, Luke, and the rest, I'm wondering if my answer is exactly the same. I esteem what Paul's saying. But there's still a cowardice. There's still a a desire to lock the pantry before we get to nine. Because God's been progressing me through this. I've never been in chains. I'm willing, God. But could you make me more willing? But I am, because I feel like my willingness is a little squeamish. I want to worship you, Lord Jesus. I want to just lay my life before you and, and let it be known that I love you and I trust you and you are worthy of my life. You are worthy. You are worthy to take from me whatever you want. That pantry is open to you and may I never try and lock it again. May I never try and measure my givenness to you. May you have access to it unlimited. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Can we say that to the church around us? Death is working in me so that you can find life. Death is working in me so that you can find life. Are we willing to die that others might live? That's the Jesus model, by the way. Very simply spoken. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I want that to echo within my soul. I have not received 39 stripes the way he has multiple times. I have not been shipwrecked. I don't know that I have suffered under the shedding of blood. I've experienced extreme pain in my service to Jesus Christ. But when I measure myself amongst the throng of witnesses that have gone before us, I'm just starting. I'm a little toddler in this journey. Okay, so we're where we're at. But may the church grow up to be a worshiping church. A church that when someone comes in and ravages the church, even while we're singing our songs, and they're killing us in here, and we continue to sing. They take me out and execute me outside and force you all to watch. 
do we rejoice knowing, don't feel sorry for me. To die is gain. Do we see it as a church? Do we behold the living God? Do we know that this is temporal and that is eternal? Do we see the bigger picture? We may go down with our commitment in our worship in pointing people to the truth and they may poke their fingers in their ears and shout and stone us just as they did Stephen. We don't want to hear it. But you get to behold the heavens open and the Christ standing at the right hand of the Father giving a standing ovation. And that's who you get to go home to. That's who you spend eternity with. There's no downside to this. Let's make sure we remember what this is about. This isn't about your 401k plan down here on earth. This is about Jesus. And it's about worshiping Jesus the way he deserves. Forsake the easiest path to death. Embrace the glory of God Almighty. Are you willing to die for Jesus? You may not know yet. Trembling as we're talking about it. Where do you stand in this? As you're measuring against this list, you feel small. So do I. And I feel small here. This is what started this message. The the name Upside Down Crosses comes from this. This is about Peter the Apostle. And Jerome says of the Apostle Peter that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. Don't give me an easy death. I want all the glory to go to my God's pantry. Not just willing to die, but willing in the face of death to see the value of your king above your own comfort. It's not just you being willing to give up life. It's you even in the giving up of life to bring the fullest measure of glory into the pantry of your king. He deserves it. They're going to crucify you, which, by the way, doesn't feel good. And Peter says, I'm unworthy. Can you turn me upside down? I cannot be in the same manner and form as my Lord. It's sacred. Please, I want to honor my king. You want a more painful death. Yes. So be it. Whatever that is, I want it to return to the church of Jesus Christ. Peter beheld his God. As it says of Peter in Christian history, he would oftentimes weep. He just was hulking fisherman of a man. He'd be weeping off to the side. Saints didn't know why. And finally, one of the saints came up to him and says, Peter, why do you cry? And his answer was, Desiderio Domini, because I dearly long to be with my Lord. Are you weeping over the fact that you are not yet with him face to face? To live as Christ. We have his presence. We have his assurance. We have his consolation in our sufferings. Yes, it's wonderful. I want to be with him. And he says, patience. Not yet. Worship me with your body and your life. Soon you'll be home, Peter. Soon. Please, Jesus. I don't want to remain here. I just want to be with you. There's still a job to do, Peter. Do it right. Live it right. Every moment of this life, do it right. And even in your death, do it right. Crucify me upside down. 
upside down crosses. What I would say is the purest, most beautiful expression of worship I think I've ever thought of, I've ever encountered. That's worship. For my king, I will not just die, but I will die a more painful death. Whatever that is, Lord Jesus, stick it in the heart of your church today. But to get it, we must see Jesus the way Peter saw him. We must know him. We must begin to weep over the realities of the fact that our God is suffering still. That there is a pain in his heart. There is a lostness in this world. There is a defrauding of his person. There is spit upon his face. There is a grievance in his heart. And we continue on. And we say, take my life. I will continue to point to that sunset. And no matter what they do to me, you get your glory. No matter what. Lutrea, the service and worship of God in accordance with the pattern of the Levite. That's what worship is. And look at this in Romans 12. That's actually what this word at the very bottom is. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, which is, as it says in other translations, your spiritual worship. It's your Latreia. It's, it's the behavior of a Levite in the temple. This is your reasonable service. You give your body. It's a living sacrifice. This is only reasonable when you behold it. When you see who he is, it's reasonable. It's not an over and above request for our lives. It's the most basic. He is worthy to receive all that he has purchased in us. That pantry door, fling it open. I know there's trepidation in this process because you're stuck way back at the beginning going, I don't he hasn't even gotten anything out of it yet. I, don't, I can't handle level 10. He knows where you're at. Let him take one thing at a time. Let him deal with you step by step. Let him prepare you for true Latreia worship. This is a statement that we have on our refrigerator back home. And Hudson can quote it. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Is that a kid's scripture? Is that one of those scriptures that, uh, you know, we get to our kids so that they can behave socially correct? You know, my kids have a propensity to complain and to argue, which is what has brought this to our refrigerator. This isn't just mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy are backed by God himself in saying this. Do everything. Without exception, there isn't one little thing during the day that we do with grumbling and complaining, moaning and groaning. Why? Because we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus to worship him. And to worship him, there is a glad suffering. There is a glad suffering. There is a constant beholding saying, he is worthy of my life. And I want him to have that sweet fragrance wafting forth from my soul always. And there is nothing that diminishes that more than grumbling and complaining. You are going to be tested in your Christian walk. There are people that are going to come against you. And when you're pointing to that sunset and they come against you and they slap you in the face, they pull down the blinds and say, I don't want to hear from you. Well, the first instinct in you is to grumble and complain about this. God, I'm telling people they're not responding. You do everything without grumbling and complaining. When they bring you to that crucifixion scene, you don't grumble and complain. You rejoice because you have been counted worthy to suffer to die 
and then to die with an upside down cross even. There's nothing better. You're the happiest of people. And as you're dying, the sunset grows even more beautiful. And you worship him there. In your state of difficulty and trial, you are happier than you've ever been in him. Physically, it's not fun. But he's worthy. You heard about those men and women that walked into be fed to the wild beasts and they were singing songs even as they were being torn to pieces. That's an upside down cross. Who would ever want that? You start practicing for your upside down cross by quitting the grumbling and the complaining. Your alarm clock waking you up in the morning to say, come, pray. Don't grumble about it. Don't kick it, throw it across the room. Embrace it. You have the privilege of coming into your God's presence. I want to know you, God. Build me strong. You begin to live this life with a purity of heart, with a constant rejoicing in the fact that he is in control of your life and he is building you. As you're exchanging this pantry out, you are getting the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. You have every reason to be happy, to be full of joy. Every reason. Expect it as you move forward. I want you to worship your king unlike you've ever worshiped him before. Lord Jesus, help us to behold you so that this becomes reasonable to us. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Let's finish with this, the spike nard. The spike nard is a beautiful fragrance. But you have been keeping that spike nard for your sake. It's in your pantry, and God is saying, this is the gospel. This is where it starts. That thing that you're putting trust in over here, I need you to break it out upon me. The king is sitting at the table, and we are his bride. We are that Mary of Bethany, and we all have spike nard right now at varying degrees. We just gave a whole bunch of different examples of spike nard. But it's something that you put your trust in, that you put your confidence in, you put your hopes in, whether it's your plans, your dreams, whether it's your talents, your abilities, whether it's your 401k account, your bank account. I don't care what it is. It belongs on him. And that's what Christianity is. While the king sitteth at his table, my spike narn sends forth the smell thereof. That's worship. That's the bride at her king's feet. It's a bowing, it's a prostration, and it's a breaking open. And the king, as he sits at his table, we come to worship him. We bow down, and we let him know that he is everything to us. Let's pray. Lord, unless we see you, these will be words. We must behold the living God. Father, we're afraid to have you pull back the veil. We're afraid to see you in all your glory. We're afraid to encounter the holy, holy, holy God. But Lord Jesus, we must see you. We must see you. We must see you at the cross. We must see you at the resurrection. We must see you at the ascension. We must see you at the right hand. We must see you seated in that position of power and authority over all things. We must behold the living God. 
so that we might properly worship the living God. Lord Jesus, not just hearing about you, but beholding the realities of who you are. Please introduce us today for your glory, honor, and praise. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.